Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am a professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and I am reading 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. Today, I'm going to be reading the first part of an essay called Marriage and Everyday Life. And before I do that, I need to give you a little bit of context for what was essentially a speech that Kolontai delivered in January of 1926. So the background of this essay is that in 1918, the Soviet Union passed its first family code. And this family code was a pretty radical revision of the family code that existed prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. And it incorporated a lot of Kolontai's ideas about disrupting the bourgeois monogamous family and liberalizing divorce. Now, the late teens and the early 1920s had been a time of incredible social, political, and economic upheaval in the Soviet Union because you had the withdrawal from World War I, you had a civil war, you had a famine, and then you had the introduction of the new economic policy, which was essentially a kind of return to capitalism in some form, which was pretty hotly contested by uh, many people in the Bolshevik government, but it was Lenin's way to try to get the Soviet economy back on its feet. Many people in the Soviet Union thought that the 1918 family code had gone too far and that divorce was too easy. And the practical implication, the practical result of the 1918 family code was that there were a lot of women that were left destitute after their husbands divorced them. Basically, men would form relationships with women, and as soon as the woman got pregnant, given that there was no birth control at the time, he would take off, and then the woman would be left with a child and have to support herself and the child without any kind of help from the man. And so... The biggest problem that the young Soviet state faced was what to do with all of these women and children who had been sort of abandoned by their husbands. And this was the question of alimony and whether or not men should be responsible for paying for the support of these women and children or whether it's the responsibility of the state. Now, the big thing is that any kind of state payments for women and children was going to cost a lot of money. And of course, the Soviet Union at this particular moment in time did not have very much of it, which is why they actually implemented the new economic policy in the first place. But Kolontai was stridently opposed to the this idea of alimony. She really believed that it was the state's responsibility to look after women and children. Now, initially, Kolontai believed that women would be able to work and earn their own wages and that the state would be able to provide kindergartens and creches for children and that children would be cared for by, by the government while women were out working and so they didn't necessarily need to be dependent on men. But unfortunately, the realities of the Soviet economy in the late teens and early 20s was such that women did not earn enough of their own uh, on their own accord. They didn't own enough wages to actually support themselves and their children, and the state institutions were not able to pick up the slack. So there was a real crisis, and this crisis led to a big public debate about the revision of the family code. There was a draft that was circulated in 1925, and all of this, by the way, you can read about in Wendy Goldman's book, Women's State and Revolution, which is a fantastic discussion of 
all of the juridical debates around these family codes. And so the piece that I'm going to read today, Marriage and Everyday Life, is from a speech that Alexandra Kolontai delivered in January of 1926 about the family code and the proposed revisions to that family code. And What's really important here is she's asking the state to commit a lot of resources to the support for women's emancipation, essentially, to support women's care work in the home, to support women as mothers. And indeed, the problem with this is that the government didn't have the money. And by 1926, the goal of women's emancipation was just really not as important to the male leaders in the Soviet Union, particularly, obviously, Stalin, than it had been in the earlier years of the revolution. So this is a a slightly longer piece. I'm going to abridge it, uh, and I will read part of it for this episode, and then there'll be a a subsequent episode, if not two, to continue the, the rest of the text. This is Marriage and Everyday Life from 1926. Comrades and citizens, the great interest which the draft of the new marriage code has aroused, the fierce debates which have unfolded at the sessions devoted to discussing it, and the extraordinarily serious and careful approach our republic is taking to the solution of this question are not accidental. Being determines consciousness, according to the old Marxist maxim, and an understanding of this fact has, to a considerable degree, if not entirely, determined the tone, the content, and the legislative essence of the new code, which is currently under general and heated discussion. In 1918 or 1919, a draft marriage code would not have provoked such controversy and disagreement. At that time, there would have been no grounds for such an intense debate. Only with the course of time, as a period of large-scale economic construction rapidly develops, the cultural level of the population rises and economic relations within the country are stabilized, is the problem of marriage and the legal relationships connected to it posed with all its importance and magnitude. In fact, alongside the stabilization of economic relations, a parallel process of the stabilization of property relations can be observed. The importance and complexities of which the lawmakers, when confronting these questions and drawing up the marriage code, could not but keep in view. The present debate is, in the main, over the concrete issue of whether to approve or oppose the marriage code, the fundamental question of the new way of life and the old psychology, and of whether the code corresponds to the condition and specificities of the new way of life that lies at the basis of all disagreements. Certain clearly defined groupings have emerged during this discussion. These can be divided into three main groups. The first is the conservatives, who hanker after the strong and legally entrenched family. The second is the liberals, who dream in the long term of establishing stable marriage, but who are prepared to make some concessions to the new lifestyles. Finally, there is the left tendency, which demands that the new law recognizes the social changes that have already taken place and openly adopts them in the future. There is no doubt that the class contradictions in our society, which we have obviously yet to outgrow, are at the root of these groupings. On the one hand, the petty bourgeois way of life and its ideology is swamping us, and on the other side, the new lifestyles, the new wives, and the ideology of the working class are making themselves felt. Petty bourgeois ideology proclaims that vice is rife and is frightened by the fact that its traditional norms are not always observed. 
But what constitutes vice and depravity? We are all well aware that everyday life frequently overtakes ideology. We can observe this happening in our country. Although the way of life is already different, the ideology has changed very little. And when relations between a man and a woman are not those of the established morality, the petit bourgeois is ready to see vice. In Western Europe and America, the principle that the only correct form of relationship between a man and a woman is monogamy is firmly upheld. In the upper classes, it was considered essential that a girl remain a virgin until marriage. This can perhaps be explained by the system of class and property relations which existed at that time, the system of inheritance and the sum of factors influencing and molding the environment. But we, after all, live in other times, in other conditions. We have completely different aspirations and a completely different way of looking at things. If everything is not yet as it should be, we must now take measures to explain the ideas in which we believe and for which we are fighting. The debate has centered on the new code. Can such a debate entirely satisfy us? The marriage code has had a strange fate. It has been criticized both from the right and from the left. The laws of the bourgeois capitalist state regulating the relations between the sexes, while making concessions to the times, strive to fulfill their main purpose, which is the strengthening of property relations. What is the approach of the new code? At first glance, it seems it has gone a long way and made great advances on the old marriage law, which was issued in the first days of Soviet power. What are the important aspects of the new code? Most important is the elimination of Article 52 of the Old Code, according to which only civil, that is, secular marriage, which is registered at the Civil Registry Office, is recognized as involving conjugal rights and responsibilities and is protected by the law. Paragraph 10 of the New Code declares registered and unregistered marriages to be equal i.e. de facto marriage is given the same status as de jure marriage, and this would seem to be a great step forward. Finally, paragraph 12 of the new code states that within the marriage relationship, the partners are obliged to support each other. And if one is unable to work or is out of work, he or she has a right to the support of the other. Paragraph 26 and 27 deal with the alimony, which is to be paid in the case of both registered and unregistered marriages. And it seems that here too, progress has been made. But how has the fundamental reasoning behind this provision been reached? In order to answer this question, we have to look back and trace the development of the debate. We should note that during the broad discussion on the new code at the second session of the All-Russian, All-Union Central Executive Committee, it was, on the whole, the peasantry who spoke in favor of registered marriage, and in particular those peasants who were not secure in their holdings. From one point of view, they might be said to be right in their stand, for they approached the question not so much from a moral as from an economic point of view. The workers, male and female, spoke in favor of equalizing unregistered with registered marriage. Insofar as we still do not have a genuine and thoroughgoing construction of new lifestyles, for the working man and working woman, the family is a consumer unit. But the strengthening of this consumer unit is for them of little or no importance. But we can see clearly that a certain section of the population, first and foremost the peasantry, is in favor of strengthening marriage by registration. They demand some official formula that makes personal relations and economic rights clear. Such aspirations, which may exist for a long time to come, are completely understandable. 
Petty bourgeois ideology, on the other hand, also criticizes the new code, but from the angle of the struggle against depravity and the fight for the purity of relationships. They support stable registered marriage and ought logically also to favor a ban on divorce to protect society from that general chaos to which their ideology is so opposed. Can marriage, however, be made as strong as it was a hundred or a hundred and fifty years ago? Do laws exist which, in the absence of inner impulses, could help to strengthen marriage and prevent its disintegration? In the Middle Ages, people were buried alive for adultery, but morality was not improved. The Napoleonic Code, which came into force when the feudal system was giving way to capitalist relations, ruled that the murder of an unfaithful wife was not punishable by law, and forbade the mother of an illegitimate child to seek out the father. However, even under these harsh laws, vice did not disappear. The code, it transpired, could not save the situation, and despite its cruel provisions, marriage was a less stable institution in France than elsewhere. What does this show? It shows the impossibility of establishing certain kinds of relationships by means of a code when life is pushing in another direction. If we thought to use such methods to combat the negative aspects of marriage, we would have to organize extraordinary commissions for the struggle against immorality. Could we even then guarantee that our aim would be achieved? No, for harsh laws only have one effect— People learn to get around them. So I'm going to stop reading from the essay right there, and I will pick up in the next episode so I can keep this uh, episode in the required time constraint. But I just want to point out that, of course, we're talking here about Stalin's Soviet Union in 1926. And here's Alexandra Kolontai speaking freely, not only to the assembled delegates uh, that were listening to her, but also she was able to publish some of her work in the newspapers and contribute to this debate over the 1926 revision of the family code. And one of the things that Wendy Goldman's book makes really clear uh, is that between 1917 and 1936, when the final family code comes into effect, there's an incredible amount of what we could call democratic debate and discussion going on in the Soviet Union over the question of sexual relations and marriage relations and the family. This was something that people were trying to work out. There were obviously different stakeholders in society. There were people on the left. There was the peasantry. There were the old petty bourgeois classes that Alexander Kolontai is quite critical of. But all of these people had a say in trying to shape the provisions of this law, this law that would basically, you know, be the, 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 the structural framing for everyone's personal relations with their partners. And I do think that this particular speech, even though it's a little tedious and very specific when she gets into details about this paragraph doing this or that, it really does show the importance of Kolontai's ideas. I think the 1918 family code was really her code. And she saw that in 1926, as this new code was being debated, that a lot of her original ideas were going to be overturned because the new Bolshevik leadership wasn't really interested in women's emancipation and certainly wasn't interested in liberalizing the family if it meant that it was going to cost the Soviet Union a lot of money. So I will talk more about this in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is Kristen Gonsi with the AK-47 podcast. If you enjoy these podcasts, I encourage you to subscribe and tell your friends about it. And until next time, keep up the good fight. Boy,